Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2 this week. We have been for the past couple of weeks during this Advent season looking at the songs recorded by Luke, songs of our Savior, as God spoke and revealed what He was about to do and what He has done, uh, the songs that were songs of response by those who encountered God's promise. This morning, our verse that we'll be focusing on will be Luke 2, verse 14, the angel's song. So we come to this text. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come as part of our worship. We sing to you songs that, of what you have done and what you are like, for you are worthy to receive all, all praise. Now we worship you as we give our ears and our hearts to listen for your voice. For while we seek to be nourished, to be strengthened, and to be directed by your word, it is honoring to you that we realize that you are speaking, and that we would not ask you to answer to us, but that we would listen to what you would say to us. In this way, Lord, that you, you strengthen us you fortify our faith, you renew our minds, and you strengthen our lives. We are in need of this. And you bless us by providing for our need, by directing, by encouraging, by revealing yourself. Father, be at work by your Spirit as we study your Word we may become more like Christ, that his characteristics of peace, of joy, of holiness would more and more also be true of us. I pray these things in the holy name of Christ, the Word incarnate. Amen. Well, if ever there was a verse that calls for a response of song of praise. It's the verse we're going to look at here in a moment. We've been looking at these songs sung by the angels. When we consider all that it suggests to us, I believe that it would, it'll amaze us and will prompt our hearts, if not our, our mouths, to respond to God with songs of praise and thanksgiving if it doesn't just make us speechless entirely. For in Luke 2, verse 14, as the angels came, the angels sang this song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with, him, with whom he is pleased. Now, what we have here is the third song of our Savior that's recruited, uh, recorded in Luke's Gospel account. And it is... Interestingly enough, the first one that actually declares the birth of the Savior. The others were promises. God coming and saying, here's what is going to happen. And in response to that promise in faith, it, it led to song, Mary, Zechariah. But for the first time now, the angel is coming and saying, not only is one coming, but there is a child. And here is the song the announced during the announcement that the child has already been given. The promise has already been fulfilled. 
It's the shortest of all of the songs, and yet it's as pregnant as Mary is, or at least as Mary was a few minutes before the angels showed up. And for us to benefit or to gain the appropriate appreciation for this angelic anthem, it's helpful for us to look at this song in the context of the story that surrounds it, both precedes it and then follows. Now, if we look at the story, there are essentially three scenes. We want to look at each of those scenes so that we can unpack and unfold. It's a progressive, a progressive uh, story, one that's familiar, but at the same time, one that sometimes we know so well that we miss the details. So we'll begin with scene one, which is in Bethlehem, and we find that in verses one through seven. Let me just read that, as we, and then we can unpack it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration or first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. As I read the story, the thing that is striking to me about this particular scene is that it is extraordinarily ordinary. I mean, think about it for just a moment, and just think about how ordinary what we just read is. It's a story of a guy named Joe who's going to visit his hometown. And even that's not particularly unique because everybody had to go to their own hometown because it was decreed by the government that everybody had to register in the census. And so people were traveling, and Joe with Joe is his not yet wife, but more than engaged, um, bride-to-be, his betrothed, uh, was married, who happened to be pregnant even though they were not yet married. Now, it may have been uncommon, at least in that culture, but that's certainly not uncommon in our culture, nothing that we see that is, is particularly unusual. The little town of Bethlehem where they went to, which some archaeologists tell us is, was about the size of a soccer field, was packed with people, kind of like prime outlets on Black Friday. It was just jam-packed, and because there were so many people in town, all the hotels were booked up, and people began looking for alternative places to rest for the night, like stables. In fact, a number of Bible scholars would suggest that the stable where Mary and Joseph settled in for the evening, they were not alone there. They did not get independent room, accommodations just for themselves. They happened to find a place that had room enough where they were able to fit in Uh, while others were there as well, because the whole place was packed out. They hadn't called ahead. They didn't have travelocity. They went to a busy place um, during tourism season and had no reservations. Again, not something that is that uncommon. Many of us have probably gone on vacation or gone someplace, not calling ahead, and only to find that that it's packed. And as they are there, Mary gives birth to a boy. Nine-month pregnant women often do that. Nothing out of the ordinary here, and she wraps him in blankets, and she puts him in the most comfortable place available. In this case, it just happened to have been 
the feeding trough, a manger. Again, when you consider the time, uh, and they didn't have, you know, kids are us, and planning ahead and registering, that was not an uncommon thing, particularly if you're spending the night in a barn. So here is a young mother gives birth when the time is due, and then she finds the most comfortable place for the child, not for herself. All of these are, are very ordinary things. And so the amazing thing to me about this scene is that it is absolutely unspectacular. Even the unusual details about the manger and, and being in the, uh, in the stable, they're not really that astonishing when you consider the time and the circumstances. And you look at this scene and you think about it, and there are no angelic visitations, at least in scene one, as we've seen. There's no reference to prophecies that are being fulfilled, though certainly they are being fulfilled, but nobody's saying, do you know what's going on here? They're just the activity that is common at any time that a birth is taking place. There's nothing astonishing. There's just a few surface details, and beyond that, we're not told much of anything. As I think about this, for many people, this is really what they know of Christmas. If you were to ask them what's Christmas about, I think that still the majority of people in our culture would be able to say Christmas is the time when Jesus was born. Some a little more informed might be able to answer this is the time when Mary gave birth to Jesus. Some might even be able to say this is the time when Mary gave birth to Jesus in a stable and put him in a manger. And we're reminded all around us uh, of this particular scene. You know, you have creches or manger scenes that are lawns of churches, living manger scenes that churches do, courthouse lawns in some smaller rural counties still have this manger scene. Houses have manger scenes. Manger scenes in some families become the situation causing the most conflict. You know, Carolyn talked about growing up in the manger scene they had in their house. She and her sister always wanted to put baby Jesus in the manger. And one year they couldn't agree whose turn it was until they tug a war and J baby Jesus' head came popping off. <laughs> but we're reminded of the details of this particular story. And beautiful, and quaint, and nice. But at least as we look at this part of the story, there's nothing particularly astonishing. There's nothing that is spectacular. And while many people know this about Christmas, if you were to press a little further and ask, why does it matter? What's the significance of Jesus being born? There are many who become a lot less confident. Many who are not quite sure. If you were to ask, what does this matter for us today? Even fewer, perhaps, would be able to answer the question. But that's what we want to explore. That's what we've been exploring during this whole holiday season. That's why we're looking at these songs. We want to understand what the significance is, not just of that day, but the significance of that day for this day. And in particular, that's what we want to explore when we're looking at this song that is the focus that we read. It's in verse 14. We want to understand what the significance is of that baby being born that would cause angels to sing out in praise, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth uh, to all on whom God's favor rests. To understand that, we need to move on to the second scene. First scene taking place in Bethlehem, the second scene now taking place outside of Bethlehem. 
If the first scene seems to be somewhat mundane, at the beginning of the second scene, it probably was even more so. Because as we pick up in verse 8, we read this. At the, in, the, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Think about that TV show. Your movie. You're watching the scene. There's not a whole lot going on in town. This small poster, uh, postal stamp size town but at least it's packed with people and activity that's going on, mundane as it may be, outside of the city, you see a few guys huddled around a fire, looking out into the darkness of the fields, seeing if they can keep up with what sheep may be doing, whether they're eating, grazing, or sleeping. Perhaps moving every once in a while, passing the coffee back and forth, there's just you know, that's the kind of scene, if you put on your laptop, it will put you to sleep. If it might be an app on your cell phone, some cell phones have apps, a little fire going or whatever, put this one on, this will help you go to sleep. This is absolutely unspectacular and even probably less interesting than the, than the first scene was when we look at it. It's just shepherds watching a field at night. But we also know that things change in a hurry. And in verse 9, we see things change and become anything but ordinary when suddenly in the darkness, the darkness is pierced by the radiance of the Lord in the form of an angel or a warrior of light. Verse 9 tells us this, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel appears first, at this point, just one, to bring a message of divine revelation. And as in the middle of the still night around this small town, these guys are racked with fear. It's quiet. It's dark. Skies may have been, stars may have been in the sky. But all of a sudden, in that darkness, they have a streak of light that just overcomes them entirely. They are overwhelmed. They are moved into, into fright. And then if that's not enough, it is embodied. It's not just a streak of light. It is in the form of a person. It is God himself in the form of an angel. And he's speaking to them. And while they may not have been, probably not been educated people, they knew enough to know that out of darkness, beings don't come and speak. And the angel speaks to them and says, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The word good news that they use here, at least as it's recorded in the Greek, that God wants for us to understand, the word is euangelion, from which we get the word gospel. In other words, the angel was bringing the gospel to these shepherds. The angel's saying, look, I'm bringing you the gospel. I'm bringing good news to you. But not just to you. And not even just to Israel. But I'm bringing the gospel for all peoples everywhere, every nation, every generation, all people everywhere. I'm bringing good news. Good news that produces great joy. Good news of great joy. And when we hear what the angel says, it should remind us that there's something about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that when it's properly understood, fills us with joy. When one understands who this child is and understands what this child at that time would do, now has done, the effect on the life of the one hearing it should be to produce great joy. Joy is something we all long for. 
Joy is something we all strive for. C.S. Lewis suggests joy is something that we all functionally live for. While he's not the first philosopher to talk about it, he, in in a very good way, points out that whatever we do, we always do it for joy. We do things because it would, we feel that that's going to bring us more joy. Sometimes we do things because it will bring us joy immediately. Sometimes we do things or refrain from things because it will bring us more joy later. Some people are confused and they feel that punishing themselves will make them feel better because they feel guilty. So if they punish themselves, then they feel like they are better off. And in a peculiar way, they're punishing themselves for the sake of a perverse joy. They don't achieve it, but they feel like, if only I'm punished, then I will be rid of my guilt. And if I'm rid of my guilt, then I will have joy. Everything we do, we do for the sake of joy. And yet what the angel is saying is, I'm bringing you good news. I'm bringing you news of this child that if you understand this news, if you understand the significance of this child, it will produce in you great joy. And we need to hear what the angel is saying because it is a reminder to us that one of the ways that we measure whether or not we are understanding or appropriating the gospel is to the degree to which it is producing joy in our life, regardless of our circumstances. The Apostle Paul says that as he's addressing the Galatian people. The Galatians who were committed to sound doctrine and duty and doing the right thing and committing themselves to just build upon the grace that they'd been given. God gave them grace. They were going to work so that that grace was a great foundation And so that they would be even better people, worthy of the grace, which is an oxymoron, but that's the mindset that they have, that I often have, and that you have, whether you recognize it or not. We all are inclined to do that. But the Galatians, Paul was addressing them and saying, look, I remember you heard the gospel clearly proclaimed to you. And you received the Holy Spirit, so he's talking to believers. He said, but I have one question for you. What happened to all of your joy? See, they were looking at their faithfulness, fidelity to sound doctrine, to their behavior of doing certain things and not doing other things. These were good PCA kind of people. And Paul asked the question to them that we in our church, not only the PCA, but we need to be asking is, okay, where's the joy? Because Paul understands exactly what the angel is saying, the good news of this child, When we understand it, when we appropriate it, it produces joy. So we need to be asking ourselves whether or not we are appropriating it. How well do we understand? Now the reasons, as we can kind of glean from this, um, as we we look at that, it's the reasons for the joy are not because your life is going pretty well. You have family, good friends, home, food to eat. So you're a blessed person. Of course you have joy. The angels are coming to people who are outcasts, insignificant, poor, despised. Nobody wanted to be around them. And he's saying, I'm bringing you good news that will give you joy. He didn't tell them they'd won the lottery. Their circumstance in life was going to change. 
He says, despite your circumstance, this news, just this news alone, regardless of your circumstance, if you understand it, it will produce joy. The angel says it's not about the circumstances. He says it's because a person has come to you. The reason that it will produce joy is because of who this baby is and what he came to do. And the reason he came is described in verse 11 when the angel says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now, to have a Savior requires people who are in some sort of trouble. They need to be saved. They need to be in circumstances that they can't pull themselves out of. Otherwise, there's no need for a Savior. Hearing that you have a Savior when you have no needs is not something that is going to move you to great joy. But the angels are saying, I am bringing you, I am proclaiming this gospel that is good news to you, you shepherds who are considered lowlifes and have no friends. To Israel, the people of God, to all peoples everywhere, doesn't matter your circumstances. The very fact that he says it's the good news for all people would seem to suggest that circumstances have nothing to do with it because as many people as there are, there aren't that many circumstances. So regardless of the circumstances, the angel is declaring that if you understand if you understand who this baby is, this good news will produce joy in you. And he turns a spotlight now in the same scene onto the child saying, this is the promised Savior, the Messiah. This is, as we will find later on, the Savior is our Redeemer, the one who purchases us, us back in accordance with God's promise. As he himself would testify about himself later on, he is the one who is the creator of all things, the one for whom and through whom all things are made and have their being. That this baby is the sovereign Lord and King. That this baby is the God of all creation. As the focus is put on this baby and the shepherds having absolutely no idea, no comprehension, which is good to me because I, while I have obviously had the benefit of study and what I really understand about God, is almost nothing. And the fact that the shepherds were being told without the benefit of seminary, schooling, or even a lot of friends, this news is for you. It means that we can have joy simply by understanding and it doesn't take a great, great deal of, of training. Just understanding and believing. And then with that announcement, after explaining that the child had been born, then the angel is no longer alone. A great multitude, thousands upon thousands of angelic beings appear and they sing their song, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace upon whom his favor rests. And in this song, we're told why it is that the news of this child being born is the great news, good news, greatest news. We're told the meaning of his coming. Glory to God in the highest. We need to understand that this is not just simply a, a general statement of praise to God. Somebody that's a great songwriter didn't just say, what an awesome way to open up our worship service. Great opening line for a song. While those are both true, it would be a great way to open a service. It is a great opening line for a song. It's a theological statement. The angel is declaring and informing us that in all of history, this particular moment, a 
of all moments in history, this particular moment represents, represents the absolute pinnacle of the display of the glory of God. God is acting in such a way that he is revealing his glory in a way that it has never been seen before, in a way that will bring him the greatest glory to his own name. If you've ever at times in your life, whether you are on a spiritual high wanting to drink more deeply or spiritual desert wanting to just be reminded that God is real, and you've just wished, maybe even prayed, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see your beauty and I want to see your majesty. I want to know what you are like. The angel has says, look at this child. This baby born to you. The old Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle commenting on this verse says this, now has come the highest degree of the glory of God by the appearing of his son, Jesus Christ, to the world. He, by his life and death on the cross, will magnify God's attributes, justice, holiness, mercy, wisdom, as they were never glorified before. Creation glorifies God, but not as much as redemption accomplished by this child. The angel in his song is testifying to this. Both in his words and in the passion by which it's sung. We need to realize this is not some, you know, the, the uh, Santa messenger boys that are, you know, coming and passing on Christmas greetings to somebody. These angels were passionate. They were declaring a theological statement. They were also declaring God's praise. Glory to God in the highest. They were amazed. They were stunned. Now, are angels ever amazed and, 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 uh, and um, marvel at anything else? Sure. Do they marvel at creation? We're told they did. We're told that they celebrate every time a person passes from death to life, from being apart from God and now receiving salvation. And they continue to marvel. They marvel at the mystery of what was promised that Christ would come. They continue to marvel at that. But there's nothing that surpasses their marveling at the birth of the Son to fulfill the prophecies and all that he would embody. I want to encourage you. Sometimes in your life, regardless of where you are spiritually at that given moment, when you're at the shore and you're looking at the ocean and you're feeling in one sense insignificant and seeing, feeling God is great or there must be a great God. When you're standing on a mountain peak and it takes away your breath, wherever it is in creation or whatever it may be that you are, just realize at that point God is good. Or there must be a God. As awesome of gifts as those are, because we're told that's exactly the purpose of God's handiwork in those things, as great a display of the glory of God as those things are, remind yourself of what the angel is revealing here, that they are nothing as compared to what is revealed in this child that is born in the person of Jesus Christ.
In him, we see the fullness of God. In him, we see all the attributes of God. In him, we see the full characteristics of God fully working together. As awesome as those things are, Christ is greater still. So the angel declares glory to God in the highest because he's declaring God has revealed his glory in a way in Christ that has never else, never been revealed before and has not been surpassed since and never will be. And peace on earth. Christ was born so that broken people like you and like me, sinful people like you and like me, who dwell on this earth can have peace. Peace with God. It's important that we understand that this peace is not something that everyone experiences. It's not what the angel is saying. The angel says in this song, peace among those with whom he is pleased, or as other translations I like better say, upon whom his favor rests. It would seem to suggest that there is some who have God's favor. There are some who do not have God's favor. The angel here isn't trying to explain that. He's just saying, peace to those upon whom God's favor rests. It's important for us to realize that the Bible teaches that every person, every person in this room, every person in the world, has a personal relationship with God. The question is whether that relationship is characterized by hostility or by peace. We need to understand that the Bible teaches very clearly that when we sin, it is a personal offense to God. And it's not something that he is going to take lightly. The Bible teaches us that our sin is actually direct opposition to God. And because God is holy, he cannot just sweep our sin under the carpet. And all of us, justly become objects of his wrath. And that's not something we talk about a lot at Christmas time. We like the sweet stuff. We like the sweet baby. We like the forgiveness that goes with it. But we will not understand the significance and how peace comes if we do not understand that reality, that condition, that all of us by our nature and then verifying it by our own actions have declared war against God and God is our enemy. And God takes it seriously. It's not something he just looks away at. In the, you may have seen some time ago in the 1950s, there was a, a novel that came out. It was kind of a satire. It was called The Mouse That Roared. It came out later on as a movie with Peter Sellers. And it was about this tiny little nation in Europe that doesn't actually exist that was about to go bankrupt, but they'd seen how the United States had, had uh, picked up uh, the bill for everybody, all the countries they had conquered uh, during World War II. So they declared war on the United States, figuring that these people, with numbering in the hundreds, would be crushed by the United States. And so they declared war and they invaded the United States, but nobody took them seriously until they walked right into the White House and took over the United States and they said, this didn't help us. We just wanted to be bailed out. We get confused when we think about God and him being at war with God and what that war would entail. And we get confused for a number of reasons. Most of us, having grown up in this particular country, have been the beneficiaries of the greatest military power in history. The idea that there's a nation out there that's going to come and threaten us is 
Other nations at most come and annoy us. We feel safe. So the idea that we would have an enemy who is so far greater than us that not only could do us in, but intends to do us in and is right to do us in escapes our mindset. Or then we think of ourselves more kind of like God and the mouse that roared. Okay, well, I know God is greater, and to think about being at war with God, but, you know, he'll just kind of overlook it. I mean, we're just so insignificant. It's not the reality. God is fully aware, and we are at war, and we are the just objects of his wrath, is what the Scripture tells us. And we need to ask ourselves, how would we feel if we realize that we are at war with somebody who is so far greater than us that we cannot compare, who has the intention and every right to do us in? Can you live at peace? I mean, anybody who does is schizophrenic. They're not dealing with reality. Oh, I'm going to be crushed today. It will probably hurt. Oh, well, I have stuff I need to get at Food Lion. Consider the number of things that we feel threatening us day in and day out that are just going to undo us. And now think about the embodiment of the person of God who intentionally has said, you are my enemy. I'm going to wipe you out. That's our condition. That's the relationship with God. Now the angel is coming and saying, peace on earth upon whom God's favor, ask, uh, favor rests. There's nobody who receives favor because they deserved it simply part of the character and the nature of God. But the question we need to be asking, because that was declared in the context of a song about the coming of this baby, is what is about the coming of this particular baby that brings peace? And the answer is that this baby was born to die. So this child would grow up, and then he would stand in our place. And when God had determined that it was time to pour out the wrath that humanity deserved, he stood there and took it. And because he took it, we can have peace. It's an amazing, amazing thing that, that takes place. God takes all the things that we deserve. He pours it on this child, this then young man. And then all of the goodness, all of the righteousness, all of the holiness that he has, he says, you know what? All of that that is real, I'm going to count it as yours. Credit it to you if you'll only just trust that he died in your place. That's what the angel means when he says a savior has been given to you. Someone who's come who has saved us. Still leaves us with the question about where does the favor rest? Jesus later answers that himself. Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. I didn't come for the healthy, I came for those who were sick. I didn't come for those who have it all together. I came for those who need help. And for those who would respond and saying, that's me. I need help. I'm not as good as I want to be. I'm not as good as I try to make you think I am. I'm broken. You've already been graced. God's already loved you to open your eyes to see that need that you would then receive the gift that he's given in his son. His favor is resting upon you. 
Jesus illustrated this even as he was preparing to fulfill the very thing that he was born to do. The night before he laid down his life, he was with his disciples and he began washing their feet. Peter, recognizing much like we should, is this is not right. This holy, I need to serve him. Peter says, Lord, don't, don't do this for me. Jesus says, if you do not let me serve you, then you have no part of me. God says that to you and to me. If you're trying to live your life in a way to be good so that you're strong and capable on your own, that you're not resting in God's service of you through Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I don't do Aflac. I don't add supplemental insurance. You're either trusting in me and let me serve you or you are not part of me at all. And Peter responds rightly, realizing that it was not only his feet that were dirty, but his entire body, his entire soul. He says, then not just my feet, my head, everything. God's favor rests upon those who realize, like Peter, that we are a mess. And no matter how we try to pretty ourselves up or no matter how we compare to the person sitting next to us, we either are trusting in Christ saving us, serving us by saving us, or we are standing alone and have no part of him. But his favor rests upon all who realize that you are a mess. And here's the great news. He's coming to the, she- to the shepherds, people who are broken, who are worthless, who are nothing. And he's saying, I'm bringing you the gospel. Good news that's going to produce great joy in you. Doesn't matter about your circumstances. Just believe. And it will produce peace in you. You don't have to worry about what God thinks of you anymore. God has not only forgiven your sin, he's counted you as being righteous. All that you deserve has been put on Jesus. He's made you his own child. Peace is accomplished. But we need to realize peace is not so much a feeling as it is a status. Periodically, not so much anymore, but for years it wasn't uncommon to hear of people that were in remote Pacific Islands, Japanese, that thought they were still at war when peace and the nation had been brought back. Their feeling did not make it reality. Whether you are feeling internal peace or not, if you are trusting in Christ, you are at peace. That status is the foundation that will often produce the feeling of peace that we want. But the absence of that feeling doesn't mean that we are not at peace. God has done it through Jesus Christ. That's the status. And when you believe that, when you appropriate it and realize that all that Christ has done that is good news because of this child, that peace is coming to you on whom God's favor rests, then the feeling of peace will often follow and grow. But the feeling is not what makes it real. Jesus made it real. There's one more scene. Touch on it briefly. The angels went away, verse 15, the angels went away from them in heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known 
the, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And these shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. There's two things that occur as a result of the gospel being declared to these shepherds and as they understand it. One is the gospel propels them to witness, and the other is it compels them to worship. They didn't simply bow down. They went. But when we understand it, it moves us to do both, be both worshipers and on mission at the same time. And they went. And these are people who are not significant. These were not people who were great. But the gospel is for all people. See, what God had done, it's interesting, is God had invited them into his story, his story of redemption. These people that were insignificant, these people who most people considered outcasts, when he revealed the good news to them, when they became worshipers, they became participants in God's story, and when they witnessed to others, they became participants in God's redemption. Because when they told other people, and other people now knew, and they believed, and they marveled, and they were able to now be among those on whom God's favor rests, they made other worshipers. They didn't even declare only to the people who didn't know anything. These guys went and they told what had happened to Mary. Now, if anybody knew what was going on, Mary probably knew more than most. From an experiential, existential standpoint, Mary was in the best position. But they go and say, well, I know you gave birth and were conceived miraculously, but let me tell you what happened to me. I mean, it's kind of that. They went and said, here's what happened to me. And Mary, listened to what they said, and Mary was amazed. Mary was encouraged. Mary treasured and pondered these things that they said. They were proclaiming the gospel to the unbelievers and the believers alike because they were compelled. They became part of God's story. And you also are invited into God's story when you hear this gospel and understand. It doesn't matter your circumstance, whether you're great or whether you're nothing. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter what you've experienced before. If you've heard it, you are now invited into the story. And as a worshiper proclaiming and declaring what God has done, you are part of the story. As one who shares with anyone else, believer or unbeliever alike, so that some may pass from dark to life, or others may be built up and encouraged in their faith, you are part of God's redemptive plan. You are part of the story. You want a gift for Christmas? How about significance? That goes along with the peace and the joy that is yours when you understand. Because there is no way to get greater significance than for the God of all creation to say, I've invited you in. I've made you part of my story. Live, tell, and have even greater joy as you see others having joy in what you declare to them. You are God's people upon whom his favor rests if you will believe. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for these simple outcasts so blessed to remind us of the blessings that we have that we do not even understand. It is not the duties that we do for you that bring you pleasure. It is your own grace at work in our lives that brings you pleasure. Lord, may that bring us pleasure as well. You have set us free. You have given us reason for joy. You have given us more than we understand. 
Lord, teach us to ponder these things, to treasure them, to rehearse them, and to live in light of them. I pray in Christ.